is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, we all know Will Smith slaps Chris Rock. Today, the Academy slaps back at Will Smith. The Board of Governors meeting and banning Smith from the Oscars and any other Academy events for the next 10 years. Now, that's less punishment than taking away his Best uh, Best Actor Oscar, which was something that some people had called for. We'll go in-depth into what this means for Will Smith uh, moving forward. We'll also head to Ukraine to learn more about that rocket attack that officials say killed 50 people at a train station in the eastern part of the country. And a woman from Kharkiv who fled the country is an aspiring screenwriter who will share her plans to tell the story of Ukraine post-war when this is finally at rest. Two men accused of pretending to be federal law enforcement agents. And uh, this is a strange one. They did this for years, allegedly bribing or trying to bribe Secret Service employees. No one's quite sure why, so we'll talk about that. New study shows COVID's impact on life expectancy here in the U.S. has dropped it again, dropped it lower. And then do you remember all the topics we just went through? No. Okay. This Should is I? The, This is the last one. Oh. People are having big problems with their short-term memory lately. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. What'd you say? <laughs> exactly. Yes. All right. Well, Last segment of the show. <laughs> we'll find out. We start, though, with uh, something that the Academy is not going to forget for a while, nor, I suppose, Will Smith. Uh, with us is Dana Harris-Britson, who is editor-in-chief for Indie Wire. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. So, uh, 10 years, he can't go to the Oscar party or to, I guess, any other Oscar events. Good enough? It's... Honestly, what else could they do? Is it good enough? Eh, no, but it's there aren't really that many other options. The real the real opportunity to make an impact would have been if they removed him from his chair right after the incident. That was the opportunity. Um, and that's gone, obviously. Uh, second best was the possibility of removing his membership, but Will Smith did that already. And so this is really all they're left with. And it's definitely you know a dark mark but in terms of the um kind of the uh, game of thrones going on between the publicists will smith won yeah did he outmaneuver them on this by saying that i'm going to drop my membership before you can oh. take it away from me absolutely it's it is a it was a very smart strategic move i'm sure he saw that there was no way he was going to keep it and that being the case uh, why not do it yourself and control the narrative? Uh, you know, that definitely takes away some of the sting that would have happened if the Academy was able to make its own announcement that we are doing this and he did it to himself. No, strategically, it was absolutely the right thing for him to do. Did the Academy, as you know, there, there were people in this uh, community who were calling for his award to be taken away. Did the Academy have the ability, first of all, to do that? And I know the argument that, well, they didn't do it with Harvey Weinstein and they didn't do it with Roman Polanski. But the counter argument to that is that in both of those cases, the uh, transgressions did not happen at the actual Oscar event. So therefore, this was a unique situation. Yeah, I think that really isn't the that probably was not the most attractive option for them, because even though there is that counter argument, uh, it's very hard to get beyond the Harvey Weinstein and Roman Polanski have their Oscar argument. And it's also it does. I'm not even sure they have a mechanism by which to do that. 
I don't. I think they'd probably wind up having to create a new set of bylaws in order to make that happen. Um, and ultimately, the Oscar is awarded for his performance in a film. Obviously, that had absolutely nothing to do with this. So, I just think in terms of trying to make decisions, that probably wasn't the most uh, appealing option for them. Yeah. So he did the work for the movie. It was a good movie. They gave him the Oscar. Uh, so post slap, though, why not say, you know what? No more Oscars for you because he still has a chance to get nominated. He could win something. He just can't go to the show. Right. And I think that and I the problem with the nomination argument is that it smacks of the blacklist. That was the only time that I'm aware of that they said they put a ban on someone being nominated. If you were part of the blacklist, you couldn't be nominated for an Oscar. Obviously, that was rescinded. I don't. I think just having that uh, association is one that they weren't eager to revive. Dana Harris Bridson, editor in chief, IndieWire. Uh, right now, the fallout from uh, Will Smith's slap has had uh, some impact on him from a business perspective. Some film projects are now on hold. But what uh, will this Academy ban, if anything, do to him in the long run? Jonathan Kuntz is a UCLA School of Theater, Film and Television professor, a film historian and an expert on the Hollywood studio system. Jonathan, thanks for being with us. So some of his projects are on hold, but he does have a a major film, I believe, that's in post-production right now, a lot of money invested in that. How does this 10-year ban on going to the Oscar party, if at all, affect the brand of Will Smith? Well, I guess uh, Will Smith's brand has definitely been affected by all of this and maybe changed forever, but it certainly hasn't decreased his fame. I think he's still going to be a significant person. He's in some ways more famous than ever this week. And uh, so I think he'll continue to get his film and TV jobs, and he generates a lot of those himself being a producer. Uh, I think the Academy ban is, in some ways, it's it's good for everybody. The Academy doesn't have to worry about bringing him up to a place where he may be facing not only cheers, but booze. Remember that nobody goes to the Academy Awards unless they're working the show, unless they're giving out awards or unless they're nominated for something. So Hollywood personalities don't often go to the awards except when they're involved. And the odds of him being involved in the next 10 years are not very strong, except next year when he would have been asked probably to award the Best Actress Award, as traditionally the Best Actor Award from the previous year does. Well, he won't be doing that gig. I think we're pretty sure about that at this point. As far as how people view him, I mean, we're going to do a segment at the end of the show about short-term memory loss. I so, forgot all about that already. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, people have short memories. Lots of things happen, so they like big movies. Maybe they like Bill Smith. Maybe they think it's outrageous now that he slapped Chris Rock. But in a few years' time, they're going to be like, oh, remember that weird thing you did at the Oscars when we slapped Chris Rock? Har, har, har. It might have a totally different flavor to it then. Well, I I don't know if Marlon Brando's career was significantly affected when he turned down an Oscar and sent up Sasheen Littlefeather for the 72 Mm, Oscars. He still got to be in, you know, Last Tango in Paris. So I don't know how much the career itself will uh, be affected. Furthermore, there are some people who have expressed some support or at least some understanding to Will Smith out there in the community. Uh, I'm curious if you agree with our previous guest who said that the... If the Academy wanted to make a statement, uh, the statement that should have been made was kicking him out, uh, Will Smith, of the theater that night. And they blew it by not doing that. 
That may be true. That's a pretty tricky thing. You know, you're in the middle of a live television show and the place where Will Smith is sitting is on live television. So you can't go there and, you know, drag him out or anything like that. Uh, And uh, this is not something I guess that the Academy was really totally prepared for. Again, you're looking at a bunch of performers who are giving a performance and this is not the kind of thing you really expect to happen. So there was some confusion with the Academy staff, apparently. In some ways, you can it's not surprising uh, that he wasn't thrown out. The uh, the headlines going around, you know, Will Smith slap gets a slap on the wrist in terms of punishment. Do you view it that way? I mean, there's the what could they have done argument, but then also they could have gone further than this in, in some respects. Yes, it is just a slap on the wrist. And it's also something that's really going to, again, protect the Academy in a certain way. On the other hand, you know, this wasn't murder. OK, uh, this was, uh, I guess, an assault or well, I don't know how that's exactly defined. The, the real hero here in many ways is still Chris Rock. I mean, what a professional, what a great comedian. Uh, you know, he carried on with the show. He did what was right. He's been, you know, I think afterwards he hasn't you know, played to the audience in any way. Uh, he's, he's set a real example for everybody uh, who who is subjected to this kind of thing. And and what about the Hollywood community? Uh, it's a tight-knit community. Uh, do you think that they are just going to view the action today by the Academy as, as good? We're glad that this is now finally, they hope, put to rest and we can all move on. And should that be their reaction? Well, uh, I, I don't know. I think most folks are going to see this as just a slap on the wrist. But on the other hand, some folks are going to say, how much more do you want to do with this? I mean, if this had been, you know, in the 1920s or 30s, when the Academy Awards were a private dinner for the industry, no one outside would have ever even heard about this. And for all we know, things like this did happen. Uh, but uh, now, of course, with live television and with the social media, everyone on Earth, uh, this is the slap, you know, heard around the world. So, uh you know, who knows? I, you know, we've had a lot of people in Hollywood who've had pretty successful careers uh, when they weren't always the best behaviors. And some of them were you know, not, not exactly beloved within the industry. So I think the community will struggle onward. It more speaks in many ways, I think, to kind of a crisis of the Academy itself. I mean, in some ways, the Academy has clearly been, you know, buffeted by the kind of culture wars of the last few years. And, you know, have had a tough time kind of riding that wave. Jonathan Koontz, UCLA School of Theater, Film, TV, professor there and a film historian expert on the Hollywood studio system. Right now, the war in Ukraine being documented uh, in real time, TV, radio, across the Internet, social media, people sharing their stories. We've been sharing them here on the show. The story of what happens after the war, after things are over, that's a story to tell as well. We're with Olena now. She's from Kharkiv, but left after the war started. Is in Italy, a screenwriter, planning to tell the post-war story. Elena also lived right here in Southern California recently, uh, out in West Hollywood. Elena, thanks for being with us. So let's just start with what the last uh, few weeks have been like for you, uh, getting to Italy and, and how things have been while you're there, watching what's happening uh, in Ukraine. Uh, hello. Um, yes, I left Ukraine about a month ago, and um, I'm safe right now. Mm, I don't know. Can you ask me a more specific question? Like, what do you want to hear? Well, uh, you uh, you left, you said, about a month ago. Why did you make the decision to, to leave? Uh, some people, we've talked to a number of people who have stayed, and we've also talked to others who have left. What was the reason you decided to leave Ukraine and go to Italy? 
Well, first I left my city. I went to another city in Ukraine, uh, and then I decided to leave Ukraine because I found a place to stay in Italy, and um, I was scared that uh, other cities in Ukraine will be bombed as well as mine, and I was so afraid to hear that sound again that I decided to to move on. Are you with friends, family? Uh, I left with my close friend. So you are a screenwriter by profession, is that right? Because you, you were living for a while in West Hollywood out here in, in Southern California. Uh, is it your intention, I understand, to what? To write a, a screenplay about the the experiences that Ukraine um, is going through? Is that it? Uh, well, I create video content, and that's what I've been doing in Ukraine. Um, yeah, I told uh, Donald, uh, I think that was his name. Uh, Our producer, yes. That I, yeah, so that uh, I'm, I'm working on some stuff because uh, all my projects that were dropped because of the war and um, right before the war started, um, I was hired to develop a TV series for TV channel. And uh, we were supposed to shoot in Kharkiv. Uh, and right now it's it's impossible, I think. I'm, I'm sure that project will never happen because the city is completely destroyed and I don't think there, there will be any shooting in the nearest future. And I'm just working on some projects uh, that I still have. And um, my art is the only thing I have right now and yeah I'm trying to to work on some some stuff that might be useful in the future when you think about what that's going to look like you know how do you envision it panning out when when you eventually can go back to your country what is what is the post-war story uh, look like to you I think uh, a lot of people will be traumatized and um, the stories I'd like to develop is how they're going to overcome this, how they're going to start to live again. Do you still have uh, friends and family left behind in Ukraine? And if so, have you been able to talk with them recently? Uh, yeah, of course. I have a lot of friends in Kharkiv. My family, uh, I don't have a lot of family, but they're not in, like, in the hot spot. They are in other cities. They're reasonably safe. Um, I'm in touch with them all the time, and I know what's going on in my city. I I watch the news. I'm watching it like I'm checking it all the time, like in real time. What goes through your mind when you watch? Obviously, you're in a safe place. Some of your friends are not. You know what's happening. You've you've seen the destruction. It must be it must be terrible to watch. Um, I think every person who, um, who is safe right now, who is, especially who is abroad, uh, like I know everyone is asking if it was the right decision to leave or whether I should have stayed. And, um, like all of my friends are there, not all of them, but there are a lot of them who stayed and, they, they're volunteers, they're trying to help, and they're keeping together. And I'm here, like, very far from them. And sometimes I'm, 
like I, I'm questioning what what is the right choice to to stay there and be sometime somehow useful and be with them together, but be all the time in danger and be scared, uh, or to choose like the to save your uh, I don't know psych your yeah. mental condition and your health but be so far and uh, not be so useful be able to help as much as you could probably we we mentioned at the beginning that for a while you lived in west hollywood were you working in the film or tv industry out here um I was trying to. I was doing editing mostly at that time. I wasn't a screenwriter, um, but my visa expired. I was a student. Uh, I I got my education in the states. Have you thought yeah, about? Yeah, so I got my film degree. Right. So uh, uh, you're in Italy now. Uh, have you thought about coming back to the states to pursue your screenwriting? Mm. Not really, because uh, I know I've been there, and I know how hard it is to make it for U.S. screenwriters, and uh, it, it is even harder to make it for like foreigners. Um, it's it's like it's too hard for me right now to think about something like that. It's a it's a too it's too big goal, I guess. What do you want people here to know? about what's happening in Ukraine? Um, it's a tough question. I don't know. I think... Um, I think you already know, like, what's going on. I just... Uh, I hope that people want stop asking and being curious about what's going on uh, because there are still people are being killed and cities being destroyed and the whole country is being destroyed and um, I just I hope that uh, the world won't give up on this they won't get tired of this you know and uh, they won't stop supporting us until it all and Elena there is uh, from Kharkiv now in Italy, screenwriter, planning to tell some of these stories, uh, she said, of, of the trauma, but then the, the recovery. Elena, thank you for speaking to us. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Another attack rocking Ukraine missile hit a train station in the eastern part of the country. Thousands of people had flocked to leave the region. Officials say about 50 were killed. Photos showed bodies covered with tarps on the ground and the remnants of a rocket with the words for the children painted on it. More on this now from journalist Phil Itner, who joins us again from Lviv, Ukraine. Phil, uh, the, the rocket had or rockets had, I presume in Russian, for the children painted on it? Yeah, uh, disturbingly so, written in Russian. Um, and, uh, it does look like there was more than, according to Ukrainian authorities and a couple of other independent authorities, it does look like there was more than one. 
uh, and that uh, at least one was either uh, either uh, destroyed by anti-missile uh, systems uh, or went off course. Um, these particular missiles that were being used are not known to be precise, so one shudders to think what could have happened had had the full effect of this attack uh, happened at that train station, which was just jam-packed with thousands of people trying to get out of the region. And has been jam-packed for a while, so it's not like the Russians didn't know that people were using that all the time to try and get out. So this falls right into that category we've seen before of just outrageous cruelty and civilian targets. Yeah, uh, you know, and uh, it's interesting, within the last 20 minutes or so, I monitor... Uh, Russian um, communiques, and I will not repeat exactly what was said because I don't like to um, further Russian disinformation, but I'll give you the crux of what the argument is coming out of the Russian foreign ministry. They are claiming that this was done by Ukrainians themselves, but if one tries to follow the mentality of that, they're saying that the Ukrainians fired on these people trying to flee the Donbass region because they are separatists, and the Ukrainians hate these separatists. But then why would they attack people who were trying to flee the separatist area? It just, it's the different, the disinformation coming out of Moscow is astounding. And um, there can be little doubt that that it was the Russians. Of course, there'll have to be a full-fledged investigation. Um, but the logic is so twisted um, that already you start to see huge holes in this logic. Uh, and, and so um, it, it belays a, a in my uh, analysis of this, having studied this situation for as long as I have, it belies logic and it just shows the cynicism coming from Moscow that they would believe the Ukrainians, in order to, I guess, drum up more support in the international community, something they already have, that they would attack thousands of their own citizens out of spite because they were trying to leave a separatist part of the country because they hate those people. I mean, you see where I'm going with this. Yeah. Yeah. It It all unravels. Yeah. How exactly. That... It falls apart upon first inspection, and it's it's distressing to see that some people would buy into that narrative. How about uh, today where you are? I, I know that uh, Lviv has sort of come in and out of the news as being, you know, it, it's sort of, you know, one day it's kind of quiet around where you are, then another day it gets kind of closer, the, the combat. How is it now? For the last couple of days, it's been relatively quiet. We haven't had anything headed in our direction. We've had a few alarm signals, but that's generally because what happens is they will shoot some, the Russians will shoot something off in this direction. And until they know exactly where it's coming, anything that's even remotely headed in this way, uh, the alarm sirens go off. But most of these missiles, because they're long range, have a second stage booster. And so before they hit that second stage and actually take direction to whatever target they're trying to hit, the authorities here try to warn the people. So we we get this constant uh, or near constant often uh, air raid signs, which just adds to the anxiety of the people here. I mean, while we may not get hit, we are constantly being reminded that we are at threat. 
Um, in addition to that, one of the things that's so distressing here is, is you see the refugees, and most notably the children. And, and that's the most terrible thing about all of this is that you see young children, uh, you know, 10 years old with that kind of thousand-yard stare that people get when they're in extended periods of, of combat or or under distress and have, I mean, to see a child have PTSD at 10, it, 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 it really, it's, it's distressing to see. And of course, it's also just being a strain um, on the city itself, a strain that the city is more than willing to accept, but it is still nevertheless a strain. Journalist Phil Itner from Lviv, Ukraine. Phil, thank you again. Four Secret Service employees caught up in a strange alleged bribery scheme. The feds say it was carried out by two men, they say, were pretending to be Homeland Security Department law enforcement agents. Yeah, this is a weird one. Matt Zapatowski is with us, national security reporter for The Washington Post. Matt, thank you. Uh, As I understand it, and I think that's the trouble here, right, trying to figure out exactly what this was, but these two had badges and guns, and they duped the actual law enforcement people into thinking they were all part of the same team? That's pretty much right. So these guys lived here in a luxury apartment building in Washington, D.C., that just happened to be home also to Secret Service agents, Homeland Security employees, you know, federal law enforcement officers. And so these two guys befriend a bunch of people in the building, their neighbors, essentially, including several Secret Service employees. They give these guys, and they offer to give these guys guns, flat screen TV, phone. Most notably, they give one person an apartment that they somehow have control of. Um, And, you know, this is sort of a problem. It seems like they are ingratiating themselves with federal law enforcement. They claim that they, too, are federal law enforcement, but the government says they're not. They did not work for the Department of Homeland Security. What remains unclear is why they were doing this. It's not as if, at least from what we know so far, they asked these Secret Service employees to do anything for them, to do to give them something in return. They just seem to be um, sort of looking for access, and you know the FBI is still investigating to determine what more there is there. But I, I mean, bizarre is 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 almost an understatement. I mean, if somebody offered, I don't know, me a, an apartment or a free apartment, I would probably want to know why. I mean, nobody asked, as far as we know, the Secret Service uh, people why these people were giving them flat-screen TVs or apartments just out of the, what, goodness of their hearts? It's a really bad look for the Secret Service, which has had some trouble in recent years. I mean, law enforcement agents, even, you know, local police get trained on who you should associate with and, and, you know, what people might, how people might try to approach you. So that these Secret Service agents just sort of took at face value, hey, they're Homeland Security, I can, I can trust them, I can just accept this stump, stuff from them. It's perplexing. Um, now, I will say there is some evidence that the ruse was sort of convincing. They, for example, had the exact same handgun that the Secret Service, one of the Secret Service agents they were talking to had, and in fact seemed to know that federal law enforcement was transitioning to use of this particular handgun. They had, you know, a vest that seemed to be like federal law enforcement would wear. They also strangely seemed to have access to surveillance cameras 
in their apartment building, which Secret Service thought, or these, these agents who they interacted with, thought maybe was an indication that they were actually law enforcement. But all that said, a postal inspector, you know, like the, the, the U.S. mail police, comes in to investigate the robbery of a mail carrier, interviews these guys as possible witness, and just in that one conversation thinks these guys aren't who they say they are, and that sets this whole thing in motion. So Good for the post office. That is my new favorite part of this whole thing. (laughs) Yeah, which also, like... Good for them, but it should not be that the postal inspector figures this out in one interview and the Secret Service guys are fooled by, like, ooh, I casually left my fake badge on the table so you think I'm DHS. Like, that's routine ruse stuff that someone would do. But 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 am I correct that isn't one of the Secret Service agents uh, in, allegedly involved in this uh, on the receiving end, uh, isn't uh, he or she on the Secret Service detail that protects the First Lady of the United States? That's correct. So the, uh, the charges against these men reference at least three different Secret Service agents specifically. Uh, two were, you know, uniformed officers protecting the White House. But one, uh, one was on Jill Biden's detail, which is, you know, pretty sensitive assignment. Would be close to the to the First Lady and to the President himself a lot of times. All this stuff, the, uh, the I'll give you the gun, I'll give you the that's a lot of money. Where was the money coming from? That is a great question, and it's one that we don't have a clear answer to yet, and it seems that the FBI doesn't even have a clear answer to it yet. There is one possibility that, particularly for the apartments, they might not have been paying. One of these guys has sort of a decades-long track record of going to an apartment, sometimes a luxury apartment, not paying rent, and then just moving on as his landlord tries to sue him or evict him. Federal prosecutors said in some some filings today that the men had a bunch of fake IDs, which maybe helped them do that. That guy claims that the money for their equipment and things came from the other guy who, interestingly, has a lot of recent foreign travel. He's born Hmm. in Pakistan. He claimed to have ties to that country's intelligence agency, though law enforcement hasn't been able to substantiate that claim yet. Um, But that money question is a big one that that we don't truly know the answer to yet. I mean, how... (laughs) How uh, alarmed are or is it uh, a level that one would consider alarm? Uh, Do you sense law enforcement is now over this or have there been offers from Netflix to turn this into a series? I think law enforcement is is pretty alarmed and law enforcement really is still trying to get to the bottom of this. When I think sometimes when you see a big high profile raid and arrest, law enforcement pretty much knows the contours of what they're working with. But this case just materialized so quickly after this postal inspection person figures out that these guys aren't who they say they are. The FBI realizes they're cozying up to Secret Service agents and then just decides we got to move on these people. We need to search their apartments and see what's up. They're still trying to untangle everything. But even if these people aren't you know, super secret spies. And and there's a lot of evidence that they might not be based on some of their other conduct. I think federal law enforcement is pretty alarmed that these guys were able to get so close to Secret Service agents, because what if there are super secret spies who try the same thing? Like if these guys can do it, it certainly exposes sort of vulnerability there. 
The uh, message here is to fully fund the United States Postal Service. <laughs> I mean, those guys are real. Those guys are yeah. real police. They investigate real cases. But yeah. it does say something that he, this person figured it out. I will never. Look, I will never look at a postage stamp the same way again. Mad Zapatowski, national security reporter, Washington Post. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The pandemic upended just about everything. One of the big impacts, the biggest on life expectancy in the U.S. The drop of nearly two years in 2020 was the largest since World War II. Now a new study finds it slipped again in 2021, this time by just under half a year. The average life expectancy now stands at just over 76 years old. Dr. Scott Cush is a life expectancy expert and medical researcher for the Life Expectancy Group. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So can we put the, the blame, if that's how you want to put it, uh, squarely on the shoulders of the pandemic, or are there other reasons? Well, we had been seeing some reductions leading up to the pandemic, but no more than 0.1 or 0.2 per year. So yes, the the bulk of this, the overwhelming majority of this is definitely due to the pandemic. Did you expect it to rebound a little bit for 2021 after 2020? I mean, we had vaccines, things were supposed to be getting better, but then we still went down by six months. Uh, You're not going to like what I have to say about this. Uh, We're going to be seeing more um, going forward. So I'm expecting this to just uh, to continue. We're going to continue to see reductions. We've made drastic uh, progress in this area, life's Life expectancy was only 35 in the 1800s in the U.S., and now it's 77. That's 120% gain over 200 years. But when we get hit by a pandemic, we see drops. In 1918, we saw a 12-year drop in a single year. And so you're, you're thinking, well, of course, and, and that pandemic lasted, the 1918 one, I think, it ended pretty much by around 1920, something like that, right? Uh, but we're already beginning the third year of this pandemic that comes and goes and waves, but it's still very much with us. So do you expect that we're going to see something longer than 12 years with this? Well, the drop of 12 years was actually even more dramatic because life expectancy was only about 47 at the time. So percentage-wise, it was just gigantic. So what we're seeing as a drop here, percentage-wise, although it feels dramatic to see a couple-year drop, It's nowhere near the percentage that we were seeing back then. The pandemic in 1918 actually went up to 1922. However, the drop was only in the first year because there was so many um, other things coming online that were fighting life expectancy, everything from improved sanitation and drinking water being better, food inspection, uh, quality was just going up greatly. But going forward, yes, this pandemic is going to continue to hit us. And a good example of this would be not just the fact that we have continued variants uh, that are emerging um, and waning vaccination, but there's an effect that's called the Peltzman effect that I believe that's playing a part. And that's essentially, um, we learned from the automobile safety laws uh, that were put in place in the early 70s, we were all expecting uh, to see drops in uh, the severity of uh, automobile fatalities. And it actually went up paradoxically because suddenly with safety belts, people started driving faster and feeling safer. We're seeing that now with vaccines. I saw a quote from somebody, a demographer, I think at one of the universities back east, and, and she was saying, 
this is a shame on us, shame on the U.S. for letting these numbers slip like this, because not that many people had to die had we taken our vaccines. Is this a shame on us? Well, I think you do have to give us some credit. I mean, we've never had a vaccine developed in under four years in the history of, of, of the world. So we did some amazing things here in this country. I think it's shame on us that we're being so hesitant about it, um, that uh, I think the big part of the problem going forward is the masking. If we could just get everyone to mask, this thing would go away a lot sooner. But there's just some false sense of security now uh, with the vaccination. But I think there was vaccine hesitancy. There still is. But now I think it's, it's mask hesitancy that's the shame on us. Dr. Scott Cush, life expectancy expert and researcher, life expectancy group. Okay, let's see if I can remember uh, what this segment is about. We it, talked about it at the beginning of the did, show. We did, we did, then, and then we said we wouldn't forget, but uh, then we kind of forgot. It's about forgetting. Oh, that's right. Now I remember. Because more people are having trouble lately. Yeah, like me. Where are the keys? What, what is that guy's name? What was I supposed to do next? Why are we here? Well, <laughs> well we that's, that that's every day, yeah. a large question. Okay. Um, that's next week's show. Uh, Grant Shields is a memory researcher, cognitive neuroscientist at the University of Arkansas. He's with us now. Uh, Grant, you had a moment, uh, what, in class with a teaching assistant that got kind of embarrassing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in the midst of a class on how stress affects cognition, uh, shortly after we had been discussing how stress affects memory, I could not remember my teaching assistant's name. So that was uh, quite a embarrassing experience for me and quite a humorous experience for uh, my students. You're just giving the class a real-time example of what we're all dealing with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One they'll never forget, <laughs> or maybe they will. <laughs> Why is this uh, something that, that I take it that your studies are showing that this is uh, an increasing issue, or is this something that we've always had and, and for whatever reason we're just noticing it? Well, it's, uh, it's probably a bit of both. So stress has been known for some time to impair our short-term and long-term memory. Uh, with all that has happened within the context of the pandemic, be it the actual risk of COVID or quarantining and isolation, lockdowns, things like that, stress has risen considerably. There's, there have been a number of studies that have documented just a, a large increase in uh, reported stress, especially around the times that the pandemic has gotten bad. So I, I think it's a bit of both, that stress has increased, and so all of us are kind of maybe n noticing that stress impairs our memory. What about just also being overwhelmed, having so many different inputs that we can't kind of catalog all of it. Charles and I were talking off the air before this about reading a book versus like a book on tape. If I'm sitting and reading the book, I'm going to remember everything, hopefully. Uh, but if I'm doing the book on tape, I'm probably doing something else. So my attention's divided. And look, living in 2022 means divided attention pretty much all the time. Yeah, that's definitely the case. Uh, we only have a finite amount of cognitive resources that we can devote to all the things that we want to uh, attend to, remember, etc. So as we're doing more and more at, at any given time, we have less cognitive resources devoted to rem remembering, you know, what what was in that book or um, 
what our teaching assistant's name is. <laughs> I've I've long said to Mike, Mike, we just don't have enough cognitive resources. Right, right. Yes. Well, some of us don't have I, more than others. Don't so. I say that all the yeah. time? <laughs> <laughs> how do How do you know though if you have a memory lapse like that that it isn't in fact the beginning of some something that's really serious? Mm. Well, that's a tough question. Um, I, I think that keeping in mind that. Lots of people are experiencing these kinds of memory lapses, maybe to a greater degree than they used to, uh, is, is helpful to interpreting, you know, one's own memory lapses. Also, when, when memory lapses get bad enough that somebody else notices them, that somebody else raises a, you know, concern, then that's probably around the time that you should start considering, you know, going to a doctor getting things checked out. Obviously, if you if you want, you can always go to a doctor and have them check your memory out, you know, well before somebody says that uh, they've noticed a problem. But um, well, is I, that, I would say... Yeah. Is that old thing, and, and, and I've heard it used with many different objects, but basically it's, you know, if you forget where you put uh, your car keys, that's okay. If you forget what a car key is, that's not. Yeah, yeah, or what a car key is called. Yeah, yeah. Is, that, is that kind of the tipping point? Yeah, I, I think uh, that that could be a good rule of thumb. How much day-to-day stuff am I supposed to remember, though? Like, if you have, again, a million different inputs, um, topics on this show, perhaps. I, I can tell you some of them we did this week, but I probably can't tell you all or most of them. Um, or, yeah, that's right. or, like, how long ago am I supposed to remember the meals I had this week. You know, if everything's working out perfectly, am I supposed to tell you what I had breakfast, lunch, and dinner since Monday? Because I don't think I can. Yeah, that's a good question. So forgetting rates differ across uh, individuals. There's there's an average forgetting rate, um, but to the extent that, you know, you might not be able to remember what you had, you know, five days ago for lunch uh, versus somebody else, you know, they can remember what they had, say, 10 days ago or, or even longer. Um, it, it, you know, that's, that's normal that, that there are those individual differences. And because of that, it's tough to say, you know, how much any one person should be remembering throughout the day. Is there a way or are there tricks, perhaps memory tricks to enhance your memory, to cut down the forgetfulness? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, there are a couple methods that i uh, just yesterday was teaching to my cognitive psychology class that would be easy enough to explain here. Um, so one of them is called the method of loci, and this is something that you could probably uh, look up. But this uses uh, visual imagery to um, to basically keep the things that you need to remember in mind in a way that you can more easily retrieve them later. So if you, uh, the method of loci links specific things that you need to remember to kind of your own mental space of say your house. So if in your mental space of your house, you really strongly link uh, this idea that, you know, you need to um, call somebody about, uh, you know, an appointment or something like that. Um, when, When you're trying to remember later on what that thing was that you know you you needed to do something but you're just not able to bring it to mind you can go back into your kind of mental space of your house and uh if you've if you've established that link strongly when you kind of get to that same space in your 
your house in your mind again, um, you, you're likely to remember that thing. Yeah, but, but this is what some people. All sorry, right, but but, but 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 what do you do? And and this isn't like a mental image of a house, but but I'm sure that well, I, I guess I hope other people have had this experience where I've yeah. like put things in in a particular place where I live because I figured that that way I won't forget. <laughs> yes. To, you know, to, to take it in the morning or whatever, and then I forget where I where the place was that I put it to not forget. Yeah. I, I do that regularly. Ah, so okay. regularly. I feel better fact, now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do that so regularly, in fact, that um, I recently purchased one of those things that allows you to kind of call your keys from your cell phone. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that that has been a game changer for me. <laughs> Grant Shields, memory researcher, cognitive neuroscientist, university. You know what I do? Yeah. University of Arkansas. I put the sticky note right on the door. Right. Like the inside of the door. So as soon yeah. as I'm walking out, it's right there in my face. But they have to remember the door. Okay. <laughs> You're always going to have trouble. All right. That's in depth for the week. We'll be back on Monday. If we remember.